What's up, everyone? Before we get to today's show, don't forget to hit the like, subscribe, share, download, listen, and whatever other button there is, and leave us a review wherever you do listen. This ensures that we can continue bringing you the great guests and amazing content like we have for you this week. On this episode of The Roll Radio, we have one of the most influential people in BJJ today, Flavio Almeida. Listen as Flavio discusses his start with Master Carlos Gracie Jr., his incredible competition career, how he needed to learn to deal with the losses that almost made him give up jiu-jitsu, his new venture, Barra Fit, and so much more. Here's The Roll Radio with multi-time world champion, Pan Am Black Belt Masters champion, and CEO of Gracie Baja Franchise Systems and Gracie Baja America, Flavio Almeida. Welcome to Raw Radio. We are live. Gary, how are you, sir? I'm good. I am good. I had a, a weird morning, but I think this is all going to settle out uh, through the conversation. I won't have to worry about that too much. And also, uh, it was Kimura night last night. My shoulders <laughs> are killing me. <laughs> yeah, no, so, great, um, great time on the mat. Uh, it as was, always, as it always. was. So, but before we get to the show and the guest, uh, as always, the rollradio.com, the Fuji Gi giveaway. Uh, ask us a question to ask the guest, or even if it's for us, if it gets read on the air, you go into a pool. Uh, once a month, we pick a random uh, person from that pool, and they get a free Fuji Gi of their choosing. Um, so definitely go there, drop us a question. Every month, everybody gets knocked out. So the pool is very, very small, and um, your chances of winning are very, very high. Um, and then also, I heard that um, I found out a little something about you that you got going on. What's that? Uh, a little side project. What's that? Uh, Ask the Black Belt. Oh, uh, you know, yeah, it, it's... I, you know, over a period of years, questions are are asked as an instructor on the mat, and and then so on, even as a, as a practitioner and as a training partner. And so, I figured I would start recording some of those question answers and put them out in the format. So, if you're interested in common questions and common answers for jujitsu, you know, look up Ask a Black Belt. It's actual podcast platform is going to be on YouTube as well. <laughs> you know, in case I have nothing else to do because I'm I- bored. You know, I put another project on my plate, but I think it's going to be very interesting. And they are very short, about five, six minute clips or episodes, you know, so it's quick listen and out, listen and out is not very prolonged conversation. Why are you laughing? Because uh, I, ha- I have one for you, but I think oh, it's going to take up too much time. We'll do it on a, on okay. a different episode. So, sounds good. But anyway, if you want to submit a question to that. So first of all, go and follow and obviously find 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 the find the podcast, listen, take advantage of it. Um, but if you do want to submit, find me on Instagram. Rozinski BJJ, and then you can submit questions there, and I'll I'll make sure those are answered. Beautiful. All Beautiful. right. Should we get to Let, it? Let's get to the guest, Professor Flavio. How are you, sir? How are you doing? I'm good, guys. How are you? Uh, we're good. We're good. Oh. Other than the shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, it, it you're one of those individuals that when I was coming up in my ranks and as I was starting jujitsu, um, you know, I was you were one of the guys I was looking up to from 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 a vision perspective to your competition. Um, so it, I'm really glad that we are able to sit down and, and chat about all of this, but before we get to some deep things, how, how, how did it all started for you? How, how did the jujitsu, how did you get the jujitsu bug? Yeah, it's, it's the traditional, uh, martial arts, uh, story, you know, like bullying school 
and my parents were freaking out and you know the streets in Rio uh, de Janeiro where I'm coming from they can get pretty wild even with the kids so um, they just wanted to empower us I guess with uh, the confidence and the skill sets that we needed to protect ourselves and I say us because my brother Ricardo was also a black belt and lives in New Jersey uh, he fought in the UFC so a lot of people know a lot of his story too. We started for those reasons, right? Just wanted to learn how to protect ourselves. And it's, it's a funny story though. Uh, we went to Gracie Baja, uh, the first school, right? And uh, Ricardo was, was, Ricardo was like probably 13 and I, yeah, 14, yeah, 13, 14 and I was 10, 11. And we, we went in and Master Carlos Gracie Jr. welcomes the door. Always very nice and very polite. But uh, we decided not to join because the geese think so bad. <laughs> like, seriously. And then we went to there was a karate school in our country club that uh, the geese didn't think as bad. So we went to karate. And then uh, uh, Ricardo, one of Ricardo's uh, best friends from school was training at the Gracie Baja Kids program. And he kept making fun. Like, Man, I can't believe you do karate. Jiu Jitsu is so much better. And then I eventually recorded a switch to jiu-jitsu. And uh, one year later, after him bullying me for being the karate guy in the family, <laughs> then uh, I switched to jiu-jitsu at age 13. So it was really just a confidence thing and, you know, uh, being able to handle bullying uh, ourselves. And then we we got into competition right on the beginning of the journey, competitive jiu-jitsu, you know, there was already lots of tournaments in Rio at that point in time, 1993, 1994. And then our passion for jiu-jitsu took off from there. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the geese because we've had many, many on the show, including <laughs> Professor Draculino and, and others. And, 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 and it seemed like that whole geese thing was, was pretty common back then. Um, it, it, it was, because, <laughs> because, well, first of all, there's a few reasons for that. First, our manners were not as polished as they are nowadays, right. so people couldn't care as much. So that's one. The schools are not built for everyone. They were built. There was a purpose. There was more geared towards competition. So it was more like a bunch of tough guys training together. It was a different mission back then. And then, but also there is no dryer in Brazil, and it's very humid. Okay, if you do have a dryer, it's very very expensive. So it's not like you can get to wash your gi every day. Well, now people do. And lastly, geese are very expensive in Brazil. And they, they were back then and they still are. So you have like one gi, maybe two. <laughs> There's not like, you don't have like the ability to wash them like you have here in the United States. Plus it's very humid. Everybody sweats a lot. So it's like the perfect combination for a very stinky environment. I'll tell you that. <laughs> let's, just say, let's just say things have changed since then. <laughs> And we have changed for better, that's for but, sure. So one of the things that you just mentioned is the vision of academies and vision of the sport, vision of the art has changed, has adjusted, has manipulated itself, created a, kind of a, you know, a very different dynamic than what it was today. What's one of the, what's some of the biggest differences that you notice reflecting back to 93, 95, maybe even 2000 to today, 2021? Man, it's a great question. Um, I think the vision has uh, been amplified, right? Because uh, I love the competitive side of Jiu-Jitsu and so does everybody at Gracie Baja. And our mission of continuing to produce the highest level of competitors 
and making sure that the, the sport of jiu-jitsu and, and the technique of grappling continues to evolve is as strong now or even stronger now than what it was back in the 80s and 90s. But back then, it was a straighter vision. It was way, way more narrow, and primary focus was to build a competition team to win the next tournament. But a lot of people don't pay attention to that, but and they only realized that after, later on when I started to study the sport and ask a lot of questions to Master Carlos Gracie Jr. It's like, the original vision of Carlos Gracie and Hito Gracie was this jiu-jitsu for everyone approach, this idea of um, using jiu-jitsu as a tool to improve people's lives, right? And, and I can say that based on what I heard, but also due to the fact that their first school that was well around. They, they, they started their first school in the 1920s. It was in the living room of our house they rented in, in uh, Rio de Janeiro. But the first professional professional run school, it was a massive operation. They had uniforms, they had a tennis courts, they had a curriculum, it was mostly private lessons. And it was geared towards like the upper middle class of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. So I think in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and certainly in the 90s, is when Jiu-Jitsu dove into this more like competitive, underground, you know, uh, 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 culture that, that did so much for the sport in terms of preparing warriors to defend the art and bring jiu-jitsu to the world. And it, it serviced that point in time, but eventually it made so much more sense to reamplify that vision and allow the sports to become more inclusive and create opportunities for all of us to make a living through jiu-jitsu, you know? So at which point, or what was the pivot point where jiu-jitsu turned from this competition-driven art or sport to, you know, more appealing to everybody, more self-defense-driven, more, 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 anybody could do it. Whether you're five or 65, you can jump in. Yeah, I think the seed, it was always there. Uh, it was just not the priority. Um, I can speak from my own observations and, and they're, of course, limited to Gracie Baja because that's my team and that's where I've done all of my training, ever trained in a non-Gracie Baja school. So it was really uh, the 2000s, the turn of the century, where Master Carlos started to see Gracie Baja was at that point in time, uh, the top competition team in the world, very accomplished. We had like some of the toughest fighters in the world training together. And I think uh, Master Carlos realized that that narrow vision needed to be amplified to allow the team to stick together and to create opportunities for people to grow together instead of growing apart. The default condition back then was that, you know, you have some of the toughest guys leave and open schools close to you and they became the next rival school. That was that was the, how Jiu-Jitsu evolved back in Brazil. And I think Master Carlos really wanted to find a way of keeping his team and his students working together. He's always been a big believer on, you know, if you, if you want to go fast, you can go alone. But if you want to go further, you have to have a group working with you. And he's always been a big proponent of that idea. So I think that uh, it was really a necessity uh, to amplify the vision, to be able to get the team to stick together and to be able to create more opportunities for everyone. And of course, there was a long process, you know, from organizing a curriculum and having classes for beginners and having a dojo etiquette, having the uniform, all of these building blocks lend us on where we are nowadays with these very professionals and well-run schools of service. You know, our largest school has a thousand jiu-jitsu students 
of you know with all kinds of different roles and backgrounds and they are able to coexist on that same environment which is a miracle you know if you think with the mindset we had back in the early 2000s yeah and and you you are absolutely right i mean the the way how jujitsu academies have changed in the last 20 years or even last 10 years. It's, it's essentially black and white, right? I mean, there's now I feel like there's business opportunities for instructors and, and, and academy owners to really make a living on it versus, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years ago, that might have not existed. It wasn't as present. And great, definitely Gracie Baja does a phenomenal job in creating these opportunities. Um, you mentioned jujitsu for everybody. Um, do you think jujitsu is for everybody? I think, I think jiu-jitsu is for everyone, but not everyone is for jiu-jitsu. Okay. <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah. So, so, so expand, yeah, that expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So I think that uh, the art, there's some, there's some very unique elements of the art that allow it to be taught to everyone, regardless of their uh, talents and limitations. Okay. You can get like a super athlete. And that person can be like the most well-accomplished MMA fighter or runner, whatever that is. And you can present the art in such a way that is going to be enhancing that person's lifestyle, mindset, you name it, right? Skill set, um, athleticism. And you can also get a person who is, and it's a real example, a double, a double amputee who doesn't have an arm, who doesn't have a leg, who lacks confidence, and that person can also benefit from it. So you can pick from the spectrum. You can also get a three-year-old. You can get like a 65. I think there was a lady who's close to 70 years old. She just got her black belt mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at the world championships. It's all over social media. So that to me, it's like, okay, it is for everyone, right? But I think um, there are some people that are not in a place in their lives that they can either afford financially or they can afford the time that is needed or even have the uh the grit and the resilience that is necessary for you to push through the challenges that jiu-jitsu presents to you you know and, um, for example i think everyone can learn how to play the guitar i'd love to learn how to play the guitar but i'm not in a position in my life that can, i can make learning how to play the guitar a priority so i can develop that skill set so in that sense i think it's it's still like a small group of people comparatively that are positioned in such a way that they can actually learn the art, even though the art can be learned by everyone. So let me ask you this, from an instructor perspective, if jujitsu is for everybody and some people might not be ready to receive the jujitsu or the knowledge of jujitsu, whose job it is to get those people in a place to receive it? Is it that person's job or responsibility to be open-minded enough about it? Or is the instructor's job to convince them, sell it, present it in the right way? I think uh, it's, a, it's a shared responsibility. Um, the instructors have been doing, and not just limited to Gracie Baja, it's been um, very reassuring and exciting to observe the industry moving forward in terms of making the sport more inclusive. That's meant for me and for anybody who's been around Jiu-Jitsu, including you guys for long enough, it's just so exciting to see the sport moving forward and more and more people benefiting from it. So the instructors are doing their part. Can they do more? Yes. Grace uh, about do everything that we can uh, uh, to make the sport more inclusive. From the marketing perspective, we have a long ways to go in terms of 
presenting the sport in a way that attracts more people. I think there are some brands with Ninja Juice who are doing a great job with that. I think guys like Jocko Willick and Joe Rogan and the type of work you guys with you does are doing with the podcast goes a long way of, you know, making the sport more inclusive or more, at least more attractive to more people. But then we can only go so far. I mean, even if, if we had like a billion dollars in our marketing budget as a sport and we pushed it out still, ultimately it's people's choice. And I think, and that's just my personal observation, um, there's there's a cultural uh, bias towards um, um, uh, activities that give you uh, like an immediate um, a return for your investment of time or investment of money. So the fitness industry, which we're all part of, it's I think people tend to favor the stuff that uh, it gives them like an easier, like more, more, more bang for their bucks, you know. And I think that jujitsu doesn't present itself that way, and it should not be presented as something that is an easy route for you to lose some weight or to learn self-defense. I think the beauty and the essence of jujitsu has to do with embracing a mindset of challenges and grinding and, and overcoming adversities. And because only through that, you can actually have the growth that is needed to be able to be a legitimate black belt. Yeah. And, and you, you bring up a very valid point, right? If, if one goes to the gym for a month, two, three, five, six, there will be immediate results versus in, in jujitsu, that result comes is a little bit more stretched out over a larger period of time. Do you think that reward at the end is greater for activities like jiu-jitsu or the art of jiu-jitsu? Do you think the change in life that takes place over the period of time that one experiences this, this journey is, is more impactful? Absolutely. I think jiu-jitsu becomes part of who we are, right? It becomes part of our identity. And it's because of the transformational process that happens on the mats. And that process only happens when we overcome adversities, you know, when we are face-to-face -face with our own limitations, physical, emotional, technical, or social, and uh, we push through and we're able to get to the other side when you're losing better. And that's the, the micro-transformation that happens on the mats every single day if you're serious about it, right? Because you can't show up and jiu-jitsu is very fun too. You can just hang out with your friends, do a few rolls and go home. Then nothing, you might burn some calories, but nothing much is happening. But if you're serious about your journey, you really want to learn the art, learn a new technique, compete on a difficult tournament, and there's micro, micro transformations happening every day in who we are. And, and then we're better for it. And you just observe, you know, the black belt speeches, right? I've seen thousands of those in my life. And not, not once, not even once, I heard a black belt speech that was around, you know, how many uh, world titles I won or how great my jiu-jitsu is. It's always about the life lessons, you know, and how jiu-jitsu has profoundly impacted the person. And that's really what jiu-jitsu does. But it can't be easy. If people find a way to make learning jiu-jitsu easy, that is going to be going away. And then it can no longer be jiu-jitsu, at least not the jiu-jitsu that... We all learn to love uh, nowadays, you know? Well, I often say if it was easy, everybody would do it without an exception. There's, <laughs> there's a level of complexity on, on from various points, and, and that's why some people, they're just not ready for it. Um, you mentioned some of the obstacles and some of the transformations that people made. What 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 is one, looking, looking in a retrospect, your entire life, what, what is the biggest transformation? What is the biggest obstacle? What, what is the biggest puzzle that you solved in your life with jiu-jitsu? 
Absolutely, to know how to deal with uh, defeat. And it has to do with my story. Um, I was a very, um, I was very um, limited as a, as a, in my athletic abilities and confidence and social skills, and even intellectually uh, until I started training jiu-jitsu uh, at age 13. Uh, jiu-jitsu, I fell in love with the art and then the competitive side of it. And I started to train with the heart. And it was the first thing I did in my life that I thought I had a shot at becoming good, good at it, right? And I realized that right on the first year of training. So I was not talented, but I was willing to work harder than everybody else. And I climbed my way through the rankings and I started to do our competition until I win my first world title at the Blue Bell level in 1997. I kept doing really well in competition for the following years. So I came from being like a very insecure, uncoordinated, unskilled individual or a child to like a very confident adult. But it, just, it was all based on the fact that I was winning. And even my relationship with the art was not there as much as I thought. I was, I was in love with, with the feeling of victory, not necessarily in love with the art, right? So when I lost uh, my world, the world champ on the semifinals of the world championship of 2000, my world fell apart. I hadn't lost a fight in my division since I was a yellow belt. So my world fell apart. And uh, I, so I decided to put my college degree on hold and go all in in jiu-jitsu. You know, if I had something else to give, I would give to it. So I trained a lot for 12 months and then I lost again on the next year. Um, and then just, I couldn't handle it. And I stopped training jujitsu for um, about a year and a half because I had to process what my relationship with jujitsu was going to be if I was no longer the champion I thought I was, you know? So I had to make peace with the notion of losing that is so important such an important life skill. You know, that was the lesson that Jiu-Jitsu taught me that really changed the person who I am. And it made me very resilient and to be able to see the lessons in your losses and instead of internalizing it, you're really trying to see what is the loss trying to show to you in terms of personal growth and, and development. And then from there on, you know, I just fell in love with Jiu-Jitsu again and competition became so much lighter and I became a much better athlete because I wasn't in it for the love of the sport. I wasn't in it because um, I wanted to have the recognition and all of, all of the good stuff that comes from winning tournaments. I still hate to lose, but when I do lose, you know, I look at it as an opportunity for growth and I am grateful for the fact that it happened instead of just being devastated for, for not being the champion at that time, you know? So that was the lesson for me, just learn how to handle losses and turn them into opportunities for growth. If, if you don't mind, I want to dig a little bit deeper here. Um, so essentially in 2000, that's your first major loss. Up to this point, you are, you are enriched with success. Everything is going beautiful in your life. W what is the feeling? Walk me through the feeling when, when I was, I was your it, hand goes up. Yeah, it was, it was just devastating because my when you win, when you when you have this trajectory in which you're only winning, right, you become unbeatable because every win boosts your confidence and makes you, like, you feel like you're in the top of the world, right? But it's a very thin platform and it can break at any moment. It broke for me. And there's many different athletes that go through something similar. Uh, and then uh, when I did lose, well, when you do that, you build a sense of identity around being the top dog, right? Mm -hmm. 
and your whole self-esteem is leaning on that. So when you lose, I think psychologically, I'm no psychologist, but it's got to be an explanation for it. It's like your world implodes and you're lost. You no longer know who you are. So I lost on the open weight on Saturday and then I did not even want to come back to compete on the on my weight division on Sunday. And then Master Carlos and my dad convinced me to come back. I fought much better, but I lost that same guy on the semifinals on Sunday. Silly mistake, boom. But it was devastating because I did not know exactly who I was after this. You know, and, and it's really, you go from feeling like you are in the top of the world to just feeling like you're worthless, right? It was totally devastating psychologically. Luckily, I had amazing people around me and they helped me push through it. And uh, and the decision was that I was going to give it another shot and really put it all that I had, you know. And even after that, when I lose again, that was when I like, I can't, I can't handle this. It was just too much psychologically. And then I decided to just move on and just not be involved with jiu-jitsu at all. And I went to pursue my college degree and do all the things. So I had to rebuild myself, build a new sense of identity and uh, get to know myself in a different way uh, so I could, you know, just uh, uh, feel good again. You know, it took me a couple of years to recover from that loss. I, well, I wanted to ask, when did you know you were ready or how did you know you were ready to come back? Was there, you know, was it a single event? Was it through family and friends or was it, you know, that new identity that led you, you back to the mats? Yeah, that's a great question, man. I appreciate it. It was the fact that I miss jujitsu, not, I miss my friends, right? And I still would go to Gracie Baha. I moved to another state and moved to Sao Paulo. I still be in touch with my friends. And I always loved to exercise. So I was doing different exercises. I started to do lots of yoga, um, strength training, running. But I started to miss jujitsu. I started to miss the art and the, the puzzles of the art and things like that. So it was finally training. And when I finally came back to training, I was finally training for the sake of training. I was no longer training for a competition, which is what I did for like, what was it, like nine years? I was just training for the sake of training. And then uh, I, I found, you know, my love for the sport. And uh, it was really cool because eventually I became a teacher. I moved to the United States and I started to teach. And that's really when I started to see things from a whole different perspective. And I started to dig more into the philosophy of the sport and, and history and then became fascinating and then just took off again from there, you know. No, you you talk about like if I'm as I'm listening to you, th- th- this is a big. You're building this up over a period of number of years, and and there is a magnitude to 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 your name. There, there there there's a weight that's being carried because of the success you have, and then everything collapses. I mean, that's you know some will say, well, listen, he's a world champion, he's huge. I mean, I can see how this could impact him. There's there's millions of people around the world right now who are thinking about quitting because of by, by far smaller obstacles, you know, by far smaller, whatever it is. Maybe I didn't lose the weight that I wanted to. Maybe I got tapped out because maybe my life is hard. Whatever. We can come up with a million excuses. Wh- what do you say to these guys? What do you say to your students who, who have, you know, different challenges and, and maybe they are easier to solve or maybe they are not? I don't know. What's your thought on that? Well, first of all, quitting is an act of selfishness. 
You quit. It, the moment that you quit or you're thinking about quitting, it's self-preservation, right? So you wouldn't... You be you lacking a reason to continue on the fight, okay? So if you think about the loyalty that you should have to your future self, right, which you're responsible for, you're responsible for yourself in the future. That's an obvious idea, and yet a lot of times we we live our lives as if we're not responsible for ourselves tomorrow, or the day after tomorrow, or next year, or the next years. So first of all, I'm I'm having a conversation with one of my students about like. How much do you care about yourself in the future? Because you should be the one that cares the most about who you're going to be tomorrow. So much so that you're willing to sacrifice who you are now so you can become that guy or that girl that you want to become, right? So I'm trying to get them to love their vision for themselves in the future. So that's the first thing, right? So and it's, it's still a very individualized uh, approach to uh, reigniting the fire or the purpose in the person. The secondly, and perhaps easier, is uh, to get person to remember that they should have a reason to fight or to continue on their journey that is bigger than themselves. If the reason to come to class is just for themselves, they're only doing it for them, they can only get so far, right? But if they're showing up, and that's what we teach at Grace Baja, they're showing up for the team. They should have a sense of responsibility for the community that they are part of now they have a reason to continue their fights, even when they're dealing with the biggest obstacles that is bigger than them, and therefore they will continue, right? And I can speak from my own experience. I've been through grueling grappling matches with, you know, some of the top names in the sport. Some of them I won, some of them I lost, but I never quit, right? And that's something I can say. And But I did I feel like quitting? Absolutely many instances in defeat or in victory, I felt like quitting. You know, I had a recent fight um, with uh, Jake Watson. He's a really talented kid here from Arizona. And I put myself on an adult bracket. I don't know why I did that. But I did it. And he showed up and I said, well, that's, that's an interesting fight. And it was a tournament that they had, like, if you have only two people, you have to fight three times and whoever wins, two wins. You know, I was not trained. For whatever reason, I showed up like unprepared. And then, um, so I went to compete with him, and it was just a five minute match with like four minutes in. I was like <laughs> exhausted. It was like, I can't, but I never quit. And the reason why I didn't quit is because not because of me, I have nothing else to prove. I'm an old dog right now, 41 years old, winning or losing, winning one more medal in my closet, losing. Like, who cares, really? My identity is no longer around the athlete that I was or the athlete that I am. I'm a father. I'm a business owner. I have so many other things to worry about. So I could quit. For me, it wouldn't make much of a difference. But the reason why I didn't quit is because I had all of my peers there with me, screaming for me. So I kept fighting for the team. So back to your question, when I have these conversations or whoever's listening, you're thinking about quitting, you got to find a reason to keep fighting that is bigger than you. Whatever fight you fight in your life, if you only do it for you because you want to be the next champion or because you want to get famous or because you want to make money, these are all great things and we all love those, but that could not, cannot be the only reason. There's got to be a reason bigger than you that you continue to fight. That's only when you fight for something bigger than you, you're really going to find out how tough you are. Do you think that's one of the main reasons why people do not continue jiu-jitsu journey because they don't have the reason bigger than them? Yeah. I think they lack the sense of responsibility towards the person they want to become. That's first and foremost. I absolutely think that from 
coaching thousands of students and seeing thousands of them quit and only hundreds getting their black belts. That's absolutely, they had, they lack a sense of responsibility for the person they want to become in the future and they're favoring who they are now at the expense of the person they want to be, the ideal version of themselves. That's really what the black belt should represent, at least on the beginning. And then they, they also lack the sense of community. You know, they, they can only see as far as their own belly button. And I'm not saying that disrespectfully. We all wired that way. I think it takes maturity and uh, sensibility and empathy for us to, to connect and to understand that our actions are affecting the community that we are part of. And when we quit, the entire community gets damaged. So what's your feeling during these conversations if there was a departure about to take place? Are you disappointed? Are you, do you understand why that happens? Yeah, of course. I wish them well. Just usually what I tell them, I say, man, I think you're better. Your life is better with jujitsu, you know, but if you're not in a position in your life that you feel like you can continue on this journey, uh, man, I'm so sorry. I just hope you find a way back on the mat soon. If not in jiu-jitsu, find something that's going to keep you grounded and something that's going to keep your balance. Life is tough, and uh, and uh, it's important that uh, you create space in your life for something that is going to allow you to focus on yourself and your own growth. And uh, To my knowledge, there's nothing better than jiu-jitsu. I'm sure there's something out there that is really, really cool, but being a jiu-jitsu guy, I can only advocate for jiu-jitsu. But I usually send them... Uh, the best wishes and I just wish them well, but it's concerning for me, you know, because quitting can become a habit like this, you know, and typically they quit other things before. So yeah. I do my very best to keep them in, but if the decision is already been made, I can only do my part. Like, like I said at the beginning, it's a shared responsibility. They have to be willing to do theirs as well. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, 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 I kind of, I kind of, I do share the same, same, same thoughts here is once the decision is made, it's hard to, even have that conversation or, or convert that conversation. Gary, did you want to say something? No, I just, I wanted to say that t- touching on that, I've seen people where they need to leave an academy because they're moving or whatever. And um, <clears throat> the people around them in that academy or their instructor or whatever, kind of take a bad attitude about it. So I want to say thanks for the way you handle it, but also something that I saw Thomas do once. And he was like, well, go find another school, keep training. If you can't be here, go be someplace else. Stay on the mats. I want to see pictures of you. I want to see that you're sharing on your social media that you are at another academy. Uh, and I think that goes a long way, too, if you can kind of just keep – I don't want to say pushing, but it's a, it's a great way to just keep that path open for people. Um, and, I, and I appreciate that instructors like you guys who take that attitude uh, rather than saying, all right, if you don't want to – because we've talked to people, world champions, that are like, if you don't want to be here, don't be here, you know, and they just kind of throw their hands up. So thank you. I think you're touching on, um, you know, the whole issue of loyalty in jiu-jitsu. It's a fascinating discussion, you know, because the old school mentality back on those uh, tribal days of like the 80s and 90s, uh, jiu-jitsu was very competitive. So there was this culture uh, in which like if you are part of a team, you have to be part of a team for life. You don't go anywhere, you know. Um, And it made sense back then to a great extent but uh, as jiu-jitsu has, has evolved and become this incredible thing that we're a part of, I think as much as we have a sense of allegiance to our students, right? We pour so much into them and that creates that brotherhood, sisterhood, um, reciprocal uh, sense of belonging. Um, man, life takes people in different directions, you know, and 
I can't, that sense of belonging to each other cannot become a sense of ownership. That's my opinion, okay? And some structures would disagree, especially like old school structures. Even within Grace we have different opinions about it. And I respect all of them. But for me, it's just lighter on my heart if I don't feel like I own my students. And then whenever they need to depart, that I wish them well, right? But that doesn't mean, the, 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 if, if you swing the pendulum to the other extreme, it's like when the students see their relationship with their schools as a transaction. I pay my tuition, that's my obligation. This guy is giving me a service. I don't see jujitsu as a transaction, you know? I think that uh, that uh, jujitsu students shouldn't see themselves as clients. They should see themselves as team members and being part of a team or any community, there's certain set of obligations. Paying tuition is certainly one of them. Otherwise, we can't maintain the place. But uh, there are other duties that we have, you know, like cleaning uniform, behaving properly, um, giving your best when you're training, paying attention to class, man. Don't come chewing gum, I, you know, or you're gonna choke. Simple things like that, you know. Uh, and that's that's the spirit of being a team member. You know, and, and a member of a community, which makes for the experience so much more exciting anyways for the students. If you see it as a transaction and the instructor is somebody you're paying to give you knowledge, it reduces that relationship to like to the bare minimum and it makes it so fragile. It's really you're not going to give much because you show loyalty when you go through some rough times, you know, so. I'm not sure if I'm going too deep into this, but what I teach our guys here and our students, the guys, not everything is going to be perfect. It's a large team. I mean, it's 3,000 students in Arizona alone, 150,000 students worldwide. But, you know, whenever, if, if we're good and, and strong together, when everything is going well only, that's not enough. Like, we're going to get through some uh, obstacles. And whenever we do, whenever you see a problem, instead of complaining about it, or spreading gossip or being a negative person, um, how about you just uh, go talk to someone who is that actual decision maker and can do something about it and you share with them, hey man, maybe this is happening. It's affecting the team. Maybe we could do something about it. What is it that we could do to make it better? So that's the mindset of team as opposed to clients that I like to teach and that I embrace. And I think it goes a long way in terms of establishing the right culture within jiu-jitsu schools. And, and again, you, you bring up a very valid point because of these, because jiu-jitsu is such a physical contact sport, we do develop this trust, we develop these relationships, and we, we spend a significant amount of time on the mat, you know, from instructor and student perspective. So it's hard not to create these relationships. So going in these extremes is damaging always, being way too owner-like, meaning I'm owning everybody here. This is my, you cannot go and talk to anybody else. That's definitely unhealthy. And then creating this business-like, 100% business-like transaction. I call it Starbucks effect. You pay, you go, and you leave. You know, it, it, it's again. So we want to keep it somewhere in the middle, right? Is that is that the, the secret sauce? I think it always is, right? It's the middle way. It's always uh, the best route. It's hard to be there. But once we have, and I think you framed it perfectly, once you have the examples of the extremes that we should avoid, then you're always going to tend to avoid the extremes and being more centered. And I think that that's the way that uh, makes the most sense for everybody, for the instructor, for the student, for the families, for the staff. You mentioned several times, um, you know, the, the, the emphasis on team at Gracie Baja, at your academies, uh, at your academy. Um, you know, one, Gracie Baja has a huge presence around the world. I mean, arguably the largest team 
there is. Yeah, Absolutely. right. I mean, that it's what it is. What leadership characteristics are important to grow a team? And I'm not talking about hundreds of thousands of students. One is starting an academy. Doesn't matter what affiliations they are part of. Doesn't just they are starting academy. How do they become a leader? How do they become the example, the on the leader of the pack, on the front of the pack? What do they need to do? Man, um, it's it's difficult. Uh, what I can say is just based on what I observed at Greece, mm-hmm. which continues to surprise me every single day. We just had our world summit here in Sedona, Arizona. Hundreds of people there, and just an incredible energy and the and the unity of the group is what stands out the most. When you look from the outside in, what stands stands out is size, maybe tradition. You know, we are the most traditional team in the world uh, that is still like very present on tournaments all over the world and and really making a mark uh, in the competitive jiu-jitsu. Uh, but it is unity that uh, is the secret sauce, if I could call it that way. And you're approaching it from the leadership angle. Uh, at Gracie Baja, decisions are made that the top priority in our board meetings, in our leadership um, decision-making at all levels of the organization is unity. What do we need to do to keep this team working together? And only then we talk about growth. So I can define that in terms of our three core values. The first one, the top priority is brotherhood and sisterhood. Brotherhood comes from the word, the word imandaji, which is a genderless word in Portuguese, but when you translate, mm-hmm. it has this male uh, connotation, but it's really brotherhood and sisterhood. And it really stands for this notion that we're stronger together and uh, we sacrifice for each other. We have each other's back. And I'm going to share with you all of the fruits of my my work and my knowledge and you do the same for me so there's this constant exchange you know like from athletes i send my athletes to texas to train with uh, draculino and piano they send their guys here there's really like nobody holds back we always doing whatever we can to lift each other up right and whenever we come across a crossroad in which if you go right you grow and there's an opportunity to win a tournament or to expand the team whatever that is uh, but that's going to damage the, the relationships. We never go that way. We always go in the direction that we are making sure that we're growing together. So there is this obsession within Gracie Baja of keeping the team together. And that doesn't mean we didn't have our fallouts. We had a lot of fallouts in our you know, 25 years history, but we've done everything that we could to keep the team together. Right? We really care for each other. That's authentic. And that's just who we are. But of course, that alone is not enough, right? Because it's impossible to keep a team together if the team is not growing, doing well, and winning tournaments, right? So another core value that we have is, is development, which really stands for our excitement and intention to, to do great things in, in all senses, you know, build amazing schools that are servicing hundreds of families in their communities to win tournaments, uh, to move the sport forward, you know, to be able to prepare athletes to compete in the UFC, all of that. And, and of course, numbers of schools is something that we take huge pride on right now. We're 905 schools worldwide and we lost very few schools during the pandemic. So to answer again, back to your, your question, it's like these two core values, they play a very important role and they really uh, 
guide decision making in every level of the organization from the local Gracie Barra school, they're taught to think that way and to lead that way all the way up to, you know, Master Carlos Gracie Jr. and the, the global leadership of Gracie Barra. What's your feeling? I mean, you're on a top level of that organization at this point, right? And, and you, you, there's a lot of responsibility on your, on, your, on, your, on your shoulders at this point. Do you feel that weight carrying this, this, this torch, if you will? Are you carrying this responsibility on to build the team and continue evolving this? I think it's more of a sense of responsibility. You know, when you think about carrying a weight, it's almost like sounds tiring and negative. It's more uplifting than anything. Um, for me, it's just a sense of responsibility. Yeah, my decisions do affect a lot of people, but people also understand when I make mistakes and they're pretty cool about it, you know, and which I do a lot. They're pretty cool about it. That doesn't mean that I can make mistakes and be reckless about my decision making, but it does give you a sense of responsibility. Uh, which elevates you, I think, as an individual. Kind of, you know, like a, like any structure, right? You have hundreds of people looking up to you, and your decisions on and off the mats affect these lives, and and that makes you carry a certain sense of responsibility that makes you a better person. I feel I just feel the same way, and I don't think for me it's not like I'm dealing with 150,000 people on a daily basis. I'm dealing more with like. 10 to 20 people who are amazing individuals who trust my work. And honestly, they help me make all of these decisions. So there's a shared responsibility. And these are amazing people. You know, all of our regional directors, our staff in the corporate office, our board, it just help really reduce the margin of error. So for me, it's less of a weight and it's more of a sense of responsibility that is uplifting and makes life even more exciting, you know? Yeah, and, and again, you talk about uplifting people and building the, those teams and allowing people to venture out in these new opportunities. I know you started a new opportunity recently, uh, Baja Fit. That's a brand new, brand new division. Is that is that together with Gracie Baja? Is it separate? What what brought this idea? I'm actually fascinated about this. Um, I what, what where did this where, where where was this born? Yeah, so uh, there was born um, about eight years ago when we noticed that uh, if we're able to isolate some of the jiu-jitsu moves and turn them into drills, that they could be repeated, solo drills that could be repeated over and over, it could actually create a heck of a workout. Mm -hmm. It was really fun. <laughs> and really a complement to everything else we do on the regular grappling classes. So that, we identified that, and also you mix that in a, in a culture, an organizational culture that is really committed, you know, to making jiu-jitsu more inclusive and you take into consideration the fact that jiu-jitsu is intimidating for most people, just, just hugging someone can be intimidating, let alone hugging somebody who's trying to choke you or break your arm, man, that's scary as hell, right? So what we noticed is that with those, it was just a class that uh, we were attracting not only our students who were having their workout done at the school but also people that were not interested in jiu-jitsu. So a lot of the moms of the kids and the wives of the, the, the man that trained with us started to do Baja Fit. We're like, well, that's cool. How about we turn that into a program? We started to come up with different set of classes that complement each other. And that uh, worked out fine. But then you really just focus here on the, 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 on the mats, right? And you know it's hard for something to grow if you're only teaching, you know? And, and because it's fitness, it's a different product and a different target um, audience, you really need to come up with 
auxiliary systems off the mats that will allow for that thing to flourish. So then that's stage three, which we're in now, uh, we're coming up with the studio concepts. And to answer your question now, Baja Fit is, it was born within Grace Baja, but it's being developed to become a separate brand. And uh, our vision is to build studios all over the world, just like we, we build with Grace Baja and to have a community that involves the Grace Baja community, but it's, it goes beyond it right now. We're just on the beginning. It's been just a few weeks we've been opening. We have about 50 members, and uh, I would say 50 50, 50% are Gracie Baja students. The other 50% are never really even knew about Jiu Jitsu, and they just came in because it's an awesome facility and it's a great workout. And But we bring a lot of the elements of Jiu Jitsu into it. So, for example, I have something on my wrist here, which is a, it's a white band with one stripe. Can you see it? Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, we have, we brought the belt system of jujitsu into fitness. And there's a certain set of fitness tests they need to do and a certain amount of time and workout and, and development within the fitness program that they need to go through in order to be able to uh, earn new rankings, right? Just like we do jujitsu. And we believe that uh, that's going to help people stay focused on small goals, celebrate small victories, and be consistent about their fitness journey, which is what people struggle the most with in fitness. Unlike jiu-jitsu, it's just to be consistent, you know. New Year's, New Year's resolution. They join the gym January 15th, they already quit, right? It's because there's yeah. no incentive for them or there's no yeah. goal setting. So we're trying to be bring a lot of the martial elements into fitness to help people develop more of their warrior mentality, push through and be able to actually make fitness part of their lives instead of just something, an activity they do for a couple of months. Professor, I got to ask you. So if one gets a black wristband, does that mean that they get black belt? In- <laughs> <laughs> I had to, sorry. I, I'm going to guess no. I'm going to say no on sorry, that one. I, I had to ask. I had to ask. Uh, but no, absolutely not. But, you know, to answer your question, the, the, we're just starting with this and we're testing all kinds of ideas, but the idea is that uh, the black belt represents a certain level of excellence mm-hmm. um, of personal mastery through jujitsu, right? You can define the black belt in many different ways and every structure has their own take on it, but I think we can all agree that uh, the black belt should represent a certain level of personal evolution through the practice of the craft, right? And you can use the black belt as a reference for a lot of things and they all mean the same thing. If the guy is a black belt in in climbing rocks, man, the guy must be really good. He started a point that was not so good, and he evolved by practicing and overcoming the hurdles. And it's the same idea with fitness. And we don't mean any sort of disrespect towards the martial arts black belt. We just want to give our fitness community an opportunity to dream about the person that they can become by engaging seriously and being committed to the process. And then, yeah. Three years, four years down the road, they might get a black band. And I don't think it's going to have the same meaning of a jiu-jitsu black belt because what it takes to be a jiu-jitsu black belt is some serious sacrifices and nothing close to being a band, black band in a fitness program. But you bring some of this symbology into fitness, you can benefit a lot of people. And that's what we're after. No, and I love it. It gives people ability to track things, gives them a motivational factor, gives them ability to or opportunity to dream and push forward towards the goals that they have established for themselves. So it's a phenomenal idea. I love it. Um, so now you 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 become you obviously an expert in jujitsu. You 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 becoming an expert, or you are an expert in the fitness realm. 
do you think that fitness and jujitsu are they are they bleeding across? Is fitness important in jujitsu? Oh yeah, well, you can you can answer that question from many different angles. I'm trying. I'm going to try to touch on the most relevant ones. If you're an athlete and you don't have a serious wow. uh, commitment to your strength and conditioning program, you're just not going to make it. Sorry, you know the days in which you can just train jujitsu are way behind us. You know you have to have a serious commitment to a strength and conditioning program, which is really fitness. You just gotta. It's a more professionally run, and there's guidance there. So yeah, they, those things are totally intersected. When you think about like from the market marketing standpoint and from business development standpoint, we're part of the fitness um, industry. You realize it or not, the martial arts is a subsection of the fitness industry. Every student that trains with us, most of them, um, they would list you know top five uh, reasons why they train. Even like your senior students it's because jujitsu makes them healthier and it's a fitness activity that they feel in their lives so they can have a more healthy lifestyle right so that's fitness um and then lastly you know from from the, the business growth standpoint the fitness industry is 10 times bigger than the martial arts industry so for a, a brand to stay uh, just within the martial arts industry, well, that's, 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 there's plenty there. You know, it's not like we're fighting for, you know, a limited amount of people who are interested in martial arts. It's been growing a lot, but there is definitely an opportunity for us to service our members and impact the community by, uh, by being able to express some of the philosophies of jiu-jitsu in a fitness program because jiu-jitsu as much as we try to make it inclusive it is extremely exclusive when you think about the entire population and if we can touch people's lives through uh, something that still brings like i said the elements of jiu-jitsu but it's not exactly jiu-jitsu i think we should all do it and there's a great opportunity there what about what about the guys who are hobbyists? What about you talking about professionals and athletes and so on? But what about these guys who, you know, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 year old and he's on the mat, he wants to should he engage into fitness fitness activities to complement his jiu-jitsu? I think so because as we age, jiu-jitsu takes a toll in our bodies and uh, if you see you're hobbyist but it depends on what you mean by hobbyists. I mean, I treat my students as serious martial artists because jiu-jitsu is something sacred to me. And for them to be a student, I expect the same level of commitment to, to the art in itself, right? So assuming that they're hobbyists, they're not professional athletes, right. but they're serious about their training and they're looking for longevity, they can't afford to just be on their jiu-jitsu journey without some compliments to their training. And I speak myself i mean i'm a pretty fit guy but i cannot train at the highest level more than three times a week i always need a day to rest so i train super hard and then i rest super hard and i rest and what i do in between matters so much uh and what i do in between is typically baja fit i also do you know lots of recovery stuff ice bath sauna and things like that that i'm complementing my training that's my fitness program um, I tried CrossFit. It was just way too intense. You can't do like CrossFit with high level jiu-jitsu training, at least not on my age, not on my body. So I do believe that finding the right fitness program that will service your jiu-jitsu journey is a great thing for every hobbyist or recreational practitioner to do. For the athletes, for the pros, if you don't do it, you just, you're not going to get as far as you want to go. 
Yeah, I love it. Are you guys looking to get crossover to get people who are doing the Baja Fit to? Is it like an introduction to jujitsu for these people? Absolutely. Is that part it's of it? Happening. It's already happening. Yeah. It's fascinating. You know, you have even at the studio, you know, some of the some of the new members they're like, so what's what's this jujitsu thing? And then we tell them the whole story, you know, about the sport and there are. So, for example, today I was teaching this morning a kettlebell class, and and we are alternating a kettlebell flow with uh, duck walks, right? The double leg, boom, you're shooting for a double leg, like a soldier, like the wrestlers. And, you know, this guy was just fascinated by it. I said, man, this is so cool. Is this like a jiu-jitsu technique? I'm like, yeah. And then it's like, man, I think I'm going to try this jiu-jitsu team. Like, I think you should. <laughs> you never know about jiu-jitsu, but because of it, it's like an entry door into jiu-jitsu. So it's definitely crossing the other way around as well. That's great. Yeah, it's I love it. I love it. It's a phenomenal idea. I love it. Uh, professor, we've been at this for almost an hour. Um, before we wrap, yeah, it goes by quick. <laughs> it goes by fast. Before we wrap this up, um, we quickly have five questions for you, and we didn't tell you about this, but this is kind of five quick, rapid questions. If you don't mind, yes, just answering the first thing that comes to your mind. Some of them are funny, some of them are serious, but always interesting and. To the conversation. Yeah, and you know what's funny about today is we kind of touched on a couple of them already. Yep. So I'll try and f- figure out a way to to uh, to bring it back up and make it pertinent to to what we're doing now. Um, but after you know quitting karate and your brother taking you to jujitsu, what was it like the first time you stepped on the mat? Oh, yeah. It was it was incredible because my training partners and and I didn't have that in karate or anything else I did before. I found in jiu-jitsu in that environment at Gracie Baja. I joined the kids program. It's like my instructors believed in me so much more than I did, and so did my training partners. And that was transformational to me. It was very empowering. And not only they believed it, but they made me behave in a way that I could actually get what they expect me to do done. Whatever that was, a hip escape, an arm lock, whatever that is. And those small little victories that started right on the first class is what changed my life. So it was an incredible thing that an incredible experience that I'll never forget. And honestly, when we are digging deep here, we're pushing the team forward. I always remember myself of my first training session and uh, how that impacted me. And I, you know, I'm saying, well, if more people around the world can have that experience, man, makes it all worth it. Would you consider that day as a life changing moment? Absolutely. Turning point in my life. That's great. That is great. I always say like the, Community is such a big part of jujitsu for me. And I think that that first day on the mat, if those people aren't the right people for you, it can really make it or break it. I don't think you're going to go back if you have a negative training partner or anything like that. Tony Vargas was my first training partner and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. So yeah, I think that's a huge, huge part of it. Um, Our second question is from a listener, uh, James, and he wants to know if, uh, and I know James, and he's on the mat a lot, so I think I know where he's coming from with this. Uh, was there ever a moment in your career where you felt like you were training too much and you were starting to burn out? And if so, you know, how did you correct that? I didn't correct it. I just uh, overtrained. That was on my early 20s when I was leading to the second shot into the world title. I just overtrained, and I didn't know exactly what it was, but I had fever. Um, I couldn't, I had uh, insomnia. I just didn't know what was going on. And I competed, I competed well, but I didn't win. And the symptoms went away. 
so I spoke to a friend who was a doctor. He's like, man, you're just overtraining. That's what was happening to you. So from there on, I just learned how to judge the limits of my body. If it's taking me an unusual time to recover from one training session to another, I know I'm overdoing it, right? So that's kind of my my trigger there, Mike. You know, if it's taking me too long to recover, I know I'm overdoing it, you know. Uh, and then you have like the, the traditional symptoms that I, I refer to. But also uh, sometimes it's not just one training session or one cycle of a training. You're just putting too much into it and you start to feel like burned out. And it's almost like your enthusiasm is fading away. And I've been through those cycles. It's okay for you to step away from the sport for a little bit and take a break. And that distance is going to reignite your passion and you're going to come right back in. Some say that quantity is less important than quality. We should focus on quality of our training, not the amount of hours that we spend on a matter. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, man, training back in the day was so inefficient because we would chat for most of the time <laughs> and do a little bit of training, right? Uh, yeah, it's absolutely quality. I, I don't think there is a recipe that uh, fits everyone, but uh, I do believe on a ratio of uh, two-thirds drilling uh, and uh, one-third live training, right? I think that that's a good ratio. Two-thirds drilling, one-third live training. Because drilling, it's not as exciting. So we all tend to be 50-50 or the other way around, two-thirds two -thirds sparring and one-third drilling. But uh, drilling is where the growth is. Well, sparring as well. But uh, that's the ratio that I think to be the closest thing to a one-size-fits-all recipe for quality training. That's great. That's great advice. Uh, we talked about um, you wanting to quit at one point already, and that's always the third question. Have you ever wanted to quit? Uh, and while we were talking about it, I was thinking um, you've been, you're surrounded through your training by, by legends of the sport now. And um, I wanted to know what their, you know, your brother, um, Carlos Jr., all these amazing, amazing people, what was their reaction when you, when you quit? Carlos called me and said, where are you? Because I was there every day, twice a day. He's like, where are you? Mm -hmm. Like, well, I think I just need a break. He's like, why? I'm like, I need to figure some things out. And at that point in time, there's not like a clear path for career development in jiu-jitsu unless you went to MMA. MMA, you know, the UFC was just coming back. Uh, so MMA never really excited me. So, and I was finishing my college degree. So I told him, I said, Mesh, the I." Yeah, I'm going to finish my degree and I'll see, you know, what role Jiu-Jitsu has in my life. It's been a lot for the last nine years. I just need a break. I love the team. I love everybody. I just need to back away a little bit. And he respected my decision. Like, I get it, man. So just know that we're here and we miss you. And and he said one thing, though. He said, uh, just don't go, don't go, don't get too far away because Jiu-Jitsu needs people like you. He said that. Jiu-Jitsu needs people like you. And that's that stayed, you know, that stayed. So that was his reaction. Uh, my brother was just teasing me. He was just making fun of me. Like, yo, <laughs> I can't believe, man, like, you're such a quitter. Or I can't believe, like, you're going to become, like, uh, this corporate guy and you're going to have, like, this big belly, you know. It's just <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's what brothers wife, do, right? Yeah. <laughs> brothers do you know my wife she was concerned you know but she's she's always been like my greatest supporter so she she always kept me on check and uh, wanted me to go work out even if it was not jiu-jitsu so i think most people in my life they respected they knew i was obsessed with it and they knew that i i needed to establish 
a healthier relationship with the sport. So I think they all knew me enough to see that it was actually a good thing at that point in time. Nice. That's awesome. Great. Um, describe your feelings when you received your black belt. Man, I was so proud because uh, I've always dreamed about that for a long time. And back in the day, it was not like there was no belt promotion. So um, I, I qualified to compete on the ADCC of 2000 in Abu Dhabi. I was a brown belt. I won the trials in Brazil and <laughs> Master Carlos wanted me to go out and compete as a black belt. So I remember he would call me, he would sit on a chair like this and say, how are you doing? I'm like, good. So you go to Abu Dhabi soon, right? I'm like, yeah, in a couple of weeks. He's like, okay, you should go as a black belt. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, you know, starting tomorrow, just come train as a black belt. So I had to go to the store, buy my belt. <laughs> and actually come back to train. Nobody knew. So I all of a sudden show up as a black belt. Yeah, it's so cool. But anyways, for me, it was just a, one of the proudest moments of my life. It meant so much for me because I put so much into it. And that was so much of my dreams in the process was just to achieve that level of excellence. But it also, it also brought me a sense of responsibility. I wanted to, to be worthy of that belt, not just in terms of how tough I was, but in terms of how I represented my team on and off the mats. And I always uh, try to my best, you know, to be in line with uh, what I learned to be the morals and, and the type of behavior that a person should expect from a black belt, not only, when we train, but also as we engage with life, you know, you're not the first one who mentions, um, and I'm trying to be careful with the words, but, but this casual or more casual approach to the black belt reward. Um, and in particular that's referring to the more old school guys and things right now have changed to the point where this is a big celebration. It's a big milestone, right? And I'm not taking away from before not being a big milestone, but it definitely was more casual. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on it? What do you think the driving factor with this uh, approach of uh, Mr. Carlos is saying, oh, you know, I think you should do it. And again, you're not the first one. We've had many guests who said like, yeah, I just showed up. He just gave it to me and I was kind of here, you know, and uh, it, it's a very interesting dynamic for me. Like I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. Those two black and white worlds from, you know, 10 years or 20 years ago to today. Look, one of the greatest things about the sport, guys, is that it's constantly evolving. Not all martial arts are like that, and certainly not all sports are like that. Not just in terms of the technique of jiu-jitsu, which is obvious, but I think the, the leaders of the sport are very open-minded. They're always looking for ways to make the sport better. And I think it was just a natural process. People realized there was a better way of doing a belt promotion, and they did. You know, uh, it's, It was very different. And, and um, back then... If you got to the black belt, I mean, the funnel was just so much more narrow. I mean, if you got to the black belt, man, you had such a thick skin or you had to develop such a thick skin that, that those things were not important for us the same way that they are important nowadays, right? What mattered was, was, was different times, you know, it's just not as important. Now, if I look, if I think back and do I wish there was a big celebration and my dad and my mom showed up and all my training partners were there to sh share that moment with me? Absolutely, right? I didn't need it, but I would still appreciate it, right? So I think it's much better nowadays than what it was, regardless of who you're promoting. Maybe you're promoting the next world champion. Maybe you're promoting, I don't know, man, a, a guy who's, who's just showed up for eight years, twice a week, and he learns jiu-jitsu, he knows how to protect himself, 
everybody benefits from this new mm-hmm. and evolved way of doing things. So, and that's, you know, I think kudos to the leaders of the sport for being so open-minded and be willing to adopt new methods of doing things that makes the sport that is already great, something even more exciting for everyone. I love it. That's great. That's great. All right. And then the last question, which is Thomas's favorite. Oh, yes. Do you wash your belt? We got to finish on a fun note. I wash my belt. <laughs> I knew you did. Yeah. I wash my belt. I absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> did you always, or did that change as you, when, when did it start changing? It changed when I became a teacher, you know, I <laughs> Like it was a, like an like expanded sense of responsibility. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's going back to those geese hanging in the locker rooms and all that. Yeah, I, know, <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. All right. Thank you so much. Well, what a phenomenal conversation. I really do appreciate your 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 very humble approach to life, beautiful and rich history, and and really your ability to share your knowledge, your experience, your leadership, not only with Gracie Baja students but also with everybody around the world. I know that you've made personally a big impact on me as I was coming up through the ranks and, and through my jiu-jitsu journey, but I know many others have been impacted by you as well. So continue doing the amazing work you do. I do appreciate it. Um, and thanks for being here. How can people find you? If anybody wants to reach out to you, you know, connect with you, where are you at? Where's Gracie Baja, uh, where's Baja fit? Well, first, thank you so much for kind of words. It means a lot. I think, uh, it's, it's an incredible sport. It's an incredible journey. And um, if you stick to it for long enough, there you start to see things in a very unique way. And I think any opportunity that we have to share our knowledge um, and our what we've learned, um, it's just special. So thank you guys for that. And thank you for your kind words. It certainly makes me feel uh, flattered and uh, it's reassuring to continue to move forward and doing what we do. Uh, as far as finding me, uh, Instagram is probably like the easiest way for people outside of Grace Baja. It's at Flavio Almeida, my first name, last name, uh, GB for Grace Baja. And message me there. I do my best to get back. It's a lot, but uh, I'll do my best to get back to you. As far as like uh, training uh, jiu-jitsu with me, I teach at Grace Baja in Arcadia, Central Phoenix. You guys are welcome to pop in anytime. I lead competition classes most of uh, most weeks when I'm I'm in town, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays at 11. Baja Fits, uh, I committed to teach uh, Mondays and Wednesdays at 5.30 a.m. So you guys are welcome to come. (laughs) That's early morning That is early. That (laughs) is early. Well, good for you. Once again, thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, sharing the amazing stories and all your knowledge. And let's wrap it up. We'll see you. Thank you so much. We'll see you around. Thank you, guys. Good luck with everything. Thank you for listening to Raw Radio. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave us a review and help us make the show even more amazing. For future episodes, check out our website and follow us on all major podcast platforms. Take care.